Good evening and welcome to the New York City Church of Christ. I'm so glad that you've joined us tonight. My name is Richard Alloway, and I serve as the evangelist here in Brooklyn, along with my wife and Daisy Aguirre, and they serve as women's ministry leaders. I'm very excited tonight because we have three ministries <coughs> in New York joining together for midweek. That is the Brooklyn region, the ministry in Harlem, and the ministry in Staten Island. Brothers and sisters, we are in for a treat for the next five weeks. Our dear brother, Gordon Ferguson, is going to be teaching us from the book of Revelation. The classes will be recorded, and I want to encourage you to go back to our websites to go listen and to YouTube. There's a lot of material here. At this time, I'm going to ask our brother, Scott Kipatrick, the evangelist in the Harlem region, to lead us in a word of prayer as we begin service tonight. Scott? Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful uh, that we're able to come together, uh, your people here in New York City. Uh, we have Brooklyn and we have Staten Island, people from Harlem. And uh, of course, our brother Gordon, it's just an honor, God, to be able to sit at uh, Gordon's feet and listen to him. But also, God, it's just an honor to be a part of your kingdom and to be brothers and sisters. Uh, we're very grateful, God, to be enlightened and, and, and uh, revealed, uh, having a revelation uh, teach to us by an incredible man. I know many of us, God, will, will walk away in awe of what your spirit is going to do. And God, we pray that many of our friends are, are joining us uh, as we all are taught uh, your word. And I pray, God, also that we uh, take your word and really spread your word to people who need it desperately. Uh, we love you so much, and we thank you so much, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So am I up? Yeah. 
It is my honor tonight to introduce our guest speaker, Gordon Ferguson. Gordon Ferguson is a Bible teacher, he's an evangelist, and he's an elder. And he has served in these roles over the years in several congregations in our fellowship of churches in San Diego, California, Boston, Phoenix, Dallas, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Ukraine, Paris, name it. Gordon has preached and taught there. Gordon is one of my favorite preachers, and I can listen to him all day. The brother knows his Bible, and I'm very thankful that for the next five weeks, we get to learn from him and to hear him preach from the book of Revelation. Gordon is 80 years old. He doesn't look 80, but he's 80 years old. He's been married to his lovely wife, Teresa, for 58 years. And come January 30th, they're going to be celebrating their 50th anniversary. Happy anniversary, Gordon. They have two children and five grandchildren. Gordon is also a cancer survivor. He's the author of 17 books and countless outlines based on the Bible and on many Bible topics. Many years ago, Gordon made a statement 
as I was listening to him preach, and I don't even remember where the class was. It was decades ago. And he made a statement that I would never forget. And that I've also said many times on the pulpit. And that statement is, never give your life for anything that death can take away. And so brothers and sisters, I know you're all muted. Let us give a warm New York City welcome to our brother Gordon Ferguson from Dallas, Texas. Gordon, over to you. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be uh, with you guys in New York. I've made many trips to New York in uh, past days, back in the 90s mainly, but uh, have many friends there and it's uh, always a treat to come. So I'm looking forward to teaching tonight. Uh, I'm praying that everything works with my computer uh, because mine uh, died uh, a few minutes ago, literally. And so I have my wife's very old computer and that's her name, of course, on the screen. Uh, but we're hoping and praying to get through it tonight. And by next week, I'll have either my computer fixed or I'll have a new one. And so let me put up the outline that I'll be using. And uh, this simply says, is Revelation. Uh-oh, we got an extra little thing there. Okay, good. Uh, is Revelation a mystery concealed or a mystery revealed? And of course, that's a question that a lot of people have if they have not studied the book of Revelation in depth. And so even if they have, they may have come at it from a different angle that I'm going to be sharing with you. But uh, I will say that I grew up uh, believing and being taught many of the things that I'm going to say now that I no longer believe, and I'll explain why. And so uh, if you already have views of Revelation that are going to be different than the ones I explained, I'll just ask you to be very patient, uh, listen very carefully, and see if what I may uh, say makes sense. Because I did have a very different view of Revelation growing up in the church that I was in, and yet more study got me on the track that I'm going to share with you that I believe is historically and contextually accurate. And so, well, my clicker is not working here to move to the next slide. So what about that? You work all of these things out in advance but they don't always work in your favor. I have no idea what's happening here, but it is not going to the next slide. Huh. It was working a while ago, right? Yes, it did. Yeah, I don't know what's happened here, but something has. Well, let me go to this and then see if I can go to this. Yeah, at least I got to the second page. We'll see if that works. So lesson one, as uh, Richard said, we'll be doing five lessons. And this one has to deal with what we call apocalyptic language. Because if you don't understand symbolic language, you're going to have a very difficult time understanding the book of Revelation and a great deal of the prophecies in the Old Testament for that matter. 
So mystery is the key term. Revelation is a mystery to many Bible readers. Many people have told me they were afraid to read it. Uh, it was that uh, fearful thing to me at one time. And I remember 1960, that was a big year. I was a senior in high school. Uh, we had this preacher friend that came to town and he was talking about Gog and Magog and the Battle of Armageddon. And in his uh, estimation, uh, he had it all figured out that there was going to be the third world war starting anytime. And that was going to be between Russia and the US, but mainly uh, the US was going to be involved because we had elected a president that was Catholic. And somehow he had worked that into his mixture of interpretation. And so the election of John Kennedy in 1960 was supposedly the sign that we were about to enter World War III. I remember the guy came and had dinner with us and my mom cooked one of his favorite dishes and mine too. But I was so upset after hearing what he was sharing that I couldn't even eat. I, I got sick and went to bed. So that was a very uh, interesting year, 1960, in many ways. But basically, the term for mystery, mysterion, means something once concealed, but now revealed by God. And so it's not supposed to be something that leaves us shaking our head and being afraid. A uh, mystery revealed by God gives us messages spiritually that we definitely need. And so he says here, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, which must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And so in the very beginning, he says that he is showing us something that can be understood. And he did it through his angel, uh, revealing it to the apostle John. He is the writer of the book, along with his three epistles and his gospel. The term uh, revelation in Greek, apocalypsis, uh, is to be uh, revealed through the use of symbols. And that's what we call apocalyptic language. It is symbolic language, but these symbols were used over and over. It was a very common form of writing uh, in Israel from the second century BC to the second century AD. And if you know Jewish history, that was a time of a lot of persecution, a lot of issues they were facing as a nation. And so this symbolic language, some have said that it was written in symbols so that they could understand it because they knew the symbols and the enemies could not understand it. Uh, that may not be true, but it does make a certain amount of sense. And there are those that feel like that is the case. Now, let's look at some of the apocalyptic language style. Uh, it was uh, showing a lot of political upheavals, and it showed those upheavals by the use of symbols, in this case, many things from creation, particularly the heavenly bodies, the moon, the stars, all of that. And so uh, in Acts 2, and you recall this from the beginning of the church, this was uh, Peter's preaching as he began to preach. It says, in the, la in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. 
Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And now he says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so these wonders he's talking about are a part of what was going to be going on in their life, in their lifetime. And uh, they were calling on God's name. They were getting saved. People were going to be baptized, lots of them, 3,000 of them later in this same chapter. But I don't think he is talking about literally uh, these uh, things taking place. The sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood. I, I don't believe that any more than I believe the moon is cheese, though I, I am a cheese lover, but I don't think the moon is made out of cheese and it wasn't literally turned to blood. I think we get help from some other passages. Matthew 24 uh, is one in which Jesus is answering some questions from the apostles about the temple being destroyed and Jerusalem being destroyed. Uh, the apostles were very impressed with the temple. And Jesus had just talked about a little widow woman who gave two copper coins. And Jesus said she gave more than all of these rich guys because she sacrificed everything she had and they gave out of their abundance. And after Jesus made that statement, the apostles quickly wanted to point out the beauty of the temple. And Jesus said, listen, the time's coming when not one stone will be left on top of the other. And so you see that in Matthew 24, you see it in Mark 13, you see it in Luke 21. He describes it more in the Jewish mode of symbolic language in Matthew 24, uh, less in Mark and much less in Luke because Luke is a book written to Gentiles. But at any rate, here's what he says. Even after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. That's all talking about what's going to be going on in the kingdoms of men. He says, uh, the son of man, or the, uh, well, uh, the son, or this sign will appear, the son of man in heaven and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And a few verses later, as he says, you ought to be able to recognize this when it happens. He says in verse 34, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So everything before verse 34 is describing things that are going to be taking place in the first century. These are not signs of the second coming. And when you read Mark's account, and Luke's account, that will become much clearer in those places. I have an article on my website, gordonferguson.org, and it's called Matthew 24, the end of the world or the end of an age, speaking of the Jewish age. And uh, if you wanna dig into that more, and these uh, verses that we've just read, uh, that article I think will cover it uh, in some detail. But 
political entities uh, or nations are shown as animals or beasts. And we'll certainly see that to be a key symbol in the book of Revelation. But uh, as with many of the signs, they were borrowed from Old Testament passages, Old Testament prophecies. For example, in Daniel 7, we're introduced to four beasts representing four different nations. And they are the same nations as the one uh, shown in chapter two as metal parts of a statue. If you've ever done what we call the kingdom study, you have studied Daniel 2 as Daniel was interpreting the dream of the king and describing uh, the four kingdoms. And he said, you, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And then after you, there will come three other uh, kingdoms represented by parts of a statue. And the last one was Rome, which was going to be a fierce and scary nation. But he says in the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And of course, he did that in Acts chapter two, from which we read a moment ago. But beast number one was a lion with wings like an eagle, and that represented Babylon. You can read through Daniel uh, seven and get this. He explains it. He gives you the interpretation. Beast number two was a bear with three ribs in his mouth, and that was Medo-Persia. The third kingdom then was the leopard, or represented by the leopard, with four wings and four heads. That was the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. Uh, and then you get to beast four, which was the terrifying beast of Rome. And those that are the same four kingdoms, as I said, that you find in Daniel chapter two. Uh, that's just a succession of kingdoms from Babylon down to Rome when God would set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And of course, in Acts 2, that uh, certainly was done. In Revelation, you're going to see two beasts representing Rome. One of them is a sea beast and one of them is a land beast. And that's the same uh, nation, that's Rome but it's two different aspects of it. And when we get to chapter 13, which we'll do uh, in a week or two or three, whenever it is, uh, we'll, I think, see clearly that the sea beast and land beast are really one in the same, they're Rome. And yet one aspect is the religious part of Rome that supports the political part and the emperor. And so we'll see that a bit later. But all the symbolism is important. Numbers as symbols all the way through the book of Revelation. One is the number of unity. And so in Ephesians 4, we read about seven things that are one of a kind. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, etc. And then the number two is the idea of strengthening. And so Jesus sent out his disciples uh, in their one of their early ministries that I just saw on Chosen by the way, I love that TV show. But anyway, he sent out his apostles two by two. That's the idea of strengthening. Three is the divine number, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Four is the cosmic or world number. And so you find in Revelation, the four winds of heaven or the four corners of the earth. And unless you're in the flat earth society, I doubt you think it has literally four corners. In fact, I don't know that the flat earth society people believe that either. 
that there are four corners. I haven't gotten into that one or the moon landing issue or any of that. Uh, I read the Bible a lot. <laughs> seven is the number of perfection. And so we would suppose that comes from the divine number plus the cosmic or world number. And so you find seven repeatedly in Revelation. Uh, seven churches will be addressed in chapters two and three. And, and in this case, uh, they are seven literal churches because he names them and names uh, their strengths and weaknesses and their calls to repentance. But I think he picked seven because that gave you a picture of what the church was like at the end of the first century. So I think those seven churches represented all the churches worldwide in their strengths and in their weaknesses. And uh, interestingly, there are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. No surprise there, because seven is a number that is used a lot. And then, if my clicker will work here, six was the number that fell just short of the perfect seven. Six was sort of like 13 in our English language today and in the way we think. I've been in some hotels that did not have a 13th floor named. Now you could count it and it was there, but it wasn't on the elevator uh, buttons because that's a, a negative connotation to a lot of us in English. Six was like that. And so when we get to uh, chapter 13, at the end of it, it talks about the mark of the beast being 666. And uh, we'll talk about what that means, but it's not nearly so mysterious as a lot of people think. Now, 10 is completeness in the Bible. And so if you had all your fingers or all your toes, you know, that was a good thing. 10 is the number of completeness. If you multiply it out, you get ultimate completeness, 1,000. And so the Bible says God keeps his uh, promises, his covenant, uh, with a thousand generations. It doesn't mean that he breaks it after the thousandth generation. It says he owns the cattle of a thousand hills. It doesn't mean that the thousand and first hill belongs to the devil. It's just the number of ultimate completeness, a multiple of 10. And then 12 is the number of organized religion. And so you have the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. You have the 12 apostles in the New Testament, and uh, they're all going to be uh, mentioned here in the book of Revelation. In fact, twice it will talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, chapter 12 and chapter 14, I mean 7 and 14, and we'll uh, describe why he uh, gives those and what he intends us to take away from that. And then three and a half is a number that shows up uh, in various ways. It was the period of persecution. It would end, it was half of six, but it would end, or half of seven rather, but uh, a period of instability and persecution. You'll find it as 42 months. You'll find it mentioned as 1260 days, which is three and a half years. You'll find it from Daniel's terminology as a time, times, and a half a time. And so that's enough three and a half times. And so all of these numbers are very, very important to us as we are trying to understand the book of Revelation. Okay, 
I need some, there we go. Why study Revelation? I'm going to give you two reasons, and I'll start with this one, to avoid extremes and incorrect interpretations. That's one reason, because there's so many things taught uh, that I think are a long way from the biblical and historical context of Revelation that we really need to get these out of the way before we get into what the book is actually teaching. I think it'll make a lot more sense if we can clear away some debris that can be very confusing. Three basic approaches to interpreting Revelation through the years. All three involve Revelation 20, the thousand year reign of Christ. We'll get to that and discuss it and explain it. But uh, the Latin for a thousand is millennium, a thousand years millennium. And so you have what's called a post-millennial view, the idea that before Jesus comes back for his thousand year reign, that everything will get to be wonderful on earth. Well, that, uh, as you can imagine, is a very old view uh, that I haven't heard anybody take in a long time. The premillennial view says that there's going to be a series of events that take place before Jesus comes for the thousand year reign. And we'll talk about what those events are or those uh, circumstances in a moment. The amillennial view is simply that uh, you don't interpret Revelation 20 to mean a literal thousand year reign on the earth. And so that would be descriptive of my view, but the premillennial view has uh, gained uh, a, a great deal of uh, prominence in the last uh, 50 years. Uh, when I started preaching 50 some years ago, the premillennial view was not that popular but when I started preaching, it was the time when it started to become very popular, and I'll explain how it did. But I heard someone say once that they were a pan-millennialist, if I can say the word. And so uh, I asked what that meant, and they said, well, I don't really have to know everything about uh, the book of Revelation. I just know in the end of it all, everything is going to pan out just fine for those who love God. And so really, I, I don't get uh, involved emotionally with Revelation. There are people who do, and they just get so involved in it. I don't do that. I have a commentary on Revelation. The latest edition of that is called Revelation Revealed that you can get from IPI Books, ipibooks.com. Uh, so I've written about it and gone through the whole book in some detail, but honestly, uh, I don't mind if somebody has a different view from me as long as it doesn't become a divisive issue or it doesn't become too important to. I recall when I was uh, very young in seeking God, uh, young married, Teresa and I had just first started getting involved in a serious way in a church. And this guy invited me to his house and he took out a, a graph. It, it, it was very long, it was rolled up. And when he spread it out, it was about six foot long and it was full of signs and symbols and all kinds of things, supposedly telling what was going to happen according to Revelation. And I didn't know enough Bible to know what I thought about any of that. 
And I said, okay, so you're very into this. You've got charts and graphs and drawings of pyramids and all kinds of things here. I said, so what's the takeaway from that? What difference should that make in my life and yours right now? And that really stumped him for a minute. But then he said, well, I guess we need to get out and help people become Christians. And I said, good, let's roll up this chart and let's go out and do just that. And so some people get so into it that it takes over their life. In modern history, when this view started becoming uh, accepted by more and more people, uh, a preacher named John Darby, he was born actually in 1800, but he was one that made this view called dispensationalism or futurism or premillennialism. It's called by different terms and each one maybe has a different wrinkle to it. In fact, there are many different, different views of it amongst those who share the basic same view. They still have a lot of differences among themselves because they're not really dealing with revelation in my judgment. Uh, C.I. Schofield in the 1900s uh, came out with a reference Bible. Uh, my parents gave me one, I think, for my 15th birthday. What I remember about it is it was really pretty. It had a bright red leather cover, and I didn't read it much, but I did keep it, and I looked back at it later as I was studying Revelation to see what he thought, and uh, they would say that John Darby was sort of the father of the, the uh, modern premillennial view, and John, uh, I mean, uh, C.I. Schofield was one that promoted it, especially through his reference Bible. But these are two figures in history that were big names. But then, about the time I began preaching, uh, a book called The Late Great Planet Earth came out, 1970. Three years later, There's a New World Coming came out. And so Hal Lindsey was the figure that uh, popularized the view that's accepted by probably the majority of evangelicals today. Uh, that was not the case in 1970, but he did manage to sway a lot of people with his writing. In fact, I have done some research on him. He is 93 years old. He still has a TV show. I, I watched him actually a few years ago for a while, and he was doing his same old thing. He has written a multitude of books. I mean, a multitude of books with all kinds of predictive prophecy in them. And honestly, if I went through all of those books and pointed out all of his prophecies that have failed flat, it would be the length of an entire book in its own. Uh, Hal Lindsey is quite a character. He, he's got the gift of persuasion. I'll give him that. I don't think he's a very good Bible student at all, but he has the gift of persuasion. Uh, he has persuaded four different women to become his wife. Uh, he's divorced three of them, but he's still married to one at age 93. And I would uh, probably suggest that he should have spent a little more time on family affairs uh, rather than all of his predictive prophecy. He, he might have been a little happier with that. Certainly the other three wives would have been, I would think. And then we get to uh, Tim LaHaye who is a minister who has written some books that are straightforward Christian-oriented books. Uh, I have read 
some of them. Uh, but then he started something that made him famous, and that was a book called Left Behind. And I think he wrote that in about 1995, if I recall. And then, uh, and they're novels, but they are supposedly based on this premillennial view that Hal Lindsey has espoused as biblical. And so he's written a number of novels, and some of those have been made into a series of movies as well. But it's all based on the concept of that view of revelation. And the rapture, of course, is the big thing uh, involved in it. And so uh, uh, we, we'll take a look at that in a bit. But we want to study to clear away debris of confusing uh, misteachings about revelation, wrong interpretations of it. And again, I say be patient as we go through this because uh, I used to believe a lot of the things that Hal Lindsey wrote about, but uh, my study of the Bible in a deeper way persuaded me that could not be the case. But I want to discover what the Bible actually teaches. I got an email in the last two weeks from a woman, a preacher's wife that I have known for decades and decades. And she said, I've heard you, Gordon, do you know a short series on Revelation. But she said, I got your commentary on it. I have read through it very slowly and very carefully and looked at the biblical passages involved. And she said, honestly, it has changed my life spiritually, not just intellectually, but spiritually. And I wrote her back and I said, sister, that's one of the best compliments I've gotten in a long time, especially on the book of Revelation. But there are things in it that build faith if we will but go through it and really get the true interpretation. We need to begin by understanding the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means that we uh, dig out the true meaning. Eisegesis means that we put in something that really isn't the true meaning. I heard one guy say once, you have exegesis and then you had uh, exit Jesus. And he called that eisegesis, exegesis, uh, because that would be a misinterpretation. Now, here are some of the components of popular end time theories. And I, as I said, there are a lot of variations within this. But the idea is that at a certain point, and the uh, certain point's been predicted many times by many people that all have failed, but you have the rapture. And we'll explain what that is and look at the passage. But the idea is that Jesus will catch up all of the saved people to be with him in heaven for seven years. And then on the earth, there will be a great tribulation that will start at about the halfway point, led by a personal antichrist. And uh, the Jews are still God's special nation. And somehow they're all going to get saved, or at least a large part of them. And then Christ will return to a literal thousand-year reign on the earth. Those are some of the main components in uh, the theories that we call premillennialism. Now, let's look at the rapture for a minute. Where do we get that from? It comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 verses 13 to 17. The context is Paul is trying to encourage people. 
And so the last verse, verse 18 says, therefore encourage one another with these words because the ones that were losing their loved ones, people that died as Christians, they were afraid they would somehow lose their reward. And Paul is assuring them, no, 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 they will not lose their reward. So he says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. By the way, this doesn't say that we don't grieve. It just says we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Uh, you're still going to grieve when you lose someone. Uh, but we do it in a different way if they're Christians, because we believe that they've gone to their reward. It's the ones left behind that are hurting so much. We just had a very tragic death in our extended family recently, and it uh, has been a heartbreaking time. He goes on to say, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And so when it says we'll be caught up, uh, that in Latin is raptio, and so there is the derivation of the word rapture. It comes out of the Latin translation. And so uh, the rapture idea is we'll be caught up together with Christ, but then all this part about the seven years, uh, you're not going to get that out of First Thessalonians. Uh, it doesn't talk anything about uh living are dead non-Christians. He's not addressing any of that. And so to come up with a theory that has all the non-Christians doing this, that, or the other, dead or alive, uh, you, you can't get that out of the passage. He's talking about two classes of people, saved, alive Christians, and saved Christians who have already died. Those are the only two classes of people he's discussing. Anything else that you come up with as a part of that doctrine, you've got to get from some other place and tell you the truth, there's no other place that it comes from that makes sense. Now, let's talk about then the Antichrist. Uh, it's uh, interesting to hear people talk about that. I've had uh, parts of discussions many times when people said, well, who do you think the Antichrist is? Uh, you know, was it Hitler? Who has the mark of the beast? And so there are just so many speculations. I remember the first preaching job that I got, we had in our congregation a barber. And he said, now you need to come to my barber shop. I'm gonna call you at the right time because we've got a guy that comes in for a haircut and he's got some of the craziest ideas about all of the book of Revelation. And uh, I want you to come and hear it. And so he called me when this guy was about to get a haircut. And I got down there really fast, sat down in a chair waiting. And he is behind this guy 
and he's asking him all these questions and he's talking all this craziness and the barber couldn't be seen by the guy because he's behind him cutting his hair and he is laughing and slapping his knee and all that and I'm trying hard to keep a straight face. Uh, that was some amazing stuff that came out of that dude's mouth, I can promise you. But what about the Antichrist? Is there a personal Antichrist? Well, here's what I know. I know that there are five passages, uh, or, or five times rather, that the term Antichrist is used, and they're all in John's writing, first and second John. And so he says in 2 John 1, 7, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Such Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so John identifies the antichrist for us. It's not some personal figure at the end of time in the middle of the, the great tribulation when all the supposed believers are caught up in the air for seven years. There's none of that. Uh, the Antichrist was a Gnostic believer. The Gnostics uh, felt like anything material was bad. The only thing that mattered was spirit. And so they came out with uh, several different emphases as a result. Some of them were, for example, uh, just saying that since the flesh is bad anyway, you can do anything you want to with it. And so in 2 Peter 3, in the book of Jude, uh, you'll find people that were involved in sexual immorality and everything else, supposed Christians, uh, who were involved in all kinds of sin outwardly, but they said as long as the spirit has it straight, then what we do with the body doesn't really matter anyway, because material things are not the good things, it's only the spirit. And uh, then you had others that said, no, 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 uh, everything material is bad. And so Paul talked about those who forbade uh, people from getting married and commanded them to abstain from certain kinds of food. And Jesus said uh, through Paul, no, he said, uh, food is created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so you get into the self-denial stage of Gnosticism, and you find that in Colossians 2, you find it in a number of other places as well, and so that would be the other side, and then uh, you get the ones that uh, John is addressing in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and those were the ones that thought Jesus did not come in the flesh, and so when you read 1st first, uh, John, he starts off by saying, we touched him, we handled him, we, he has a body, uh, he was flesh and blood, he didn't just appear to be flesh and blood, but the docetic doctrine, meaning something that seems to be, it wasn't really, but seems to be, the docetic doctrine was a part of Gnosticism, and that is, material things are bad, therefore Jesus could not have been literally uh, in a physical body. And so he identifies it. He says, that's the Antichrist. They don't accept Jesus as the Bible uh, describes him as the early church taught him. And he says, they are the deceiver and the Antichrist. And then when we get into Revelation, we'll find another uh, evidence of Gnosticism. 
And that would be that they felt like they had this special pipeline to God. They knew the deep things of God, no matter what the Bible said or uh, what somebody preached, they had that special insight, the deep things of God. And uh, John calls them what they were. Jesus calls them what they were. They were the deep things of Satan. Now they were calling them the deep things of God, but they were false. And so God is saying, no, no, those are the deep things of Satan. So that was another way that Gnosticism evidenced itself uh, by being a libertine and doing anything you wanted to do or through the whole realm of self-denial, saying that anything uh, material had to be avoided. And then uh, the part that said Jesus therefore couldn't have come in the flesh and then the pipeline straight to God in spite of what the Bible said or the early prophets preached. So you see a lot about Gnosticism. It was a big problem, but there is no personal antichrist found in the New Testament. And uh, we'll explain some of that more as we go through. Now, the last thing that I want to discuss tonight is the whole idea of Christian Zionism the belief that the Jews are still God's special nation. If you just read the New Testament, you will shed that idea very fast. I started on a reading schedule this year. Actually, I started last year. I've been doing it for some months now. But I have a schedule where I read through the New Testament one time every month. So 12 times a year through the New Testament. And when you do that, you will be amazed at people that are trying to come up with the Mosaic law and some aspects of the law and are focusing so much on the Sabbath day concept and a lot of other feast days and all of that. When you read through the New Testament carefully, uh, you don't even have to read it carefully, just read through it. The New Testament makes it clear that the Jews were not still God's special nation. In fact, tell you the truth, in one sense, they never were. They were a special nation physically for physical purposes of being a separate nation and learning about God and bringing the Messiah into the world. And so they were God's special nation as far as that purpose was concerned. But there were two elections in the Old Testament at the same time. You had the physical election as God's nation to learn all the things about uh, religious terminology and practices, et cetera, and prepare for the coming of the Messiah, you had them as a special nation in that sense. But then the only ones that were actually saved spiritually were called the remnant. They were the remnant, just uh, a small amount of the entire nation. And God makes that plain. Jesus in his personal ministry makes that plain. Uh, that not all Jews were right with God simply by reason of being Jews. In fact, John the Baptist said, don't pride yourself in being a Jew physically. He said, God can raise up from these stones right here, children to Abraham, if that's all that's involved. And so when you start looking at some of what Jesus said, he promised that the kingdom would be taken away from the Jews. And of course, uh, that happened in time when the church got established and his spiritual kingdom began to spread around the earth. 
Uh, it became predominantly Gentiles in time, though it started with only Jewish believers, but the large majority of Jews did not believe and did not accept Christ, and that they were the ones that persecuted the early church so much long before the Romans did. It started off with the Jews persecuting Christians, and eventually, by the time of Revelation, we're getting at the beginning point of the church being persecuted severely by Rome. Uh, you go to uh, Matthew 12, and he says the last state of the Jews would be worse than the first. There are so many things that Jesus said in the Gospels about the Jews. They would not accept him. He said it'd be better off. Uh, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah would have listened better than you have. And uh, if they had seen the signs that you've seen, they'd be still here today. I mean, Jesus was constantly saying to the Jews that you're trusting the wrong thing, and that is why you are rejecting me. And so this uh, Christian Zionism, that at some point, uh, the Jews are all going to come to God, uh, you couldn't get that out of the Bible with a crowbar. And uh, I'll talk somewhere in here about uh, uh, Romans chapter 11. That's where people go to try to prove that. But the context itself says it can't be true. But uh, at any rate, that's a part of Christian Zionism. And now God's special people are spiritual Jews, Christians, and not physical Jews. And so in Romans 2, he talks about it. In chapter 9 and verse 6, he talks about it. In Galatians 3, he talks about it. Many passages. I just stuck uh, Galatians 6.16 in there today because he says to the Galatian church that we, the church, Christians, we are the Israel of God. And so the church is now the true Israel, the spiritual Israel of God. And the uh, Jewish people uh, uh, physically are not God's chosen people and nor will they ever be unless they accept Christ as their Messiah. And of course, I know a lot of people, I have relatives that were Jewish or married to relatives that are Jewish uh, in the flesh. And uh, I envy them. I tell them, I envy you Jews because you got Abraham twice. He is your father in the flesh and your father in the spirit, the father of faith. And so uh, I do envy them with their background and uh, being a part of the nation of Israel in one way or another many centuries later. But the true Jews, the true Israel, uh, would be the church. And so some of those things we will deal with and God will deal with uh, next week when we get into chapters two and three uh, we're actually going to continue our introduction some when we uh, get to that, but we're going to go through those seven churches and take a look at them, and there are things that will tie into what I have introduced tonight. And so there's a lot more to come, but unless you deal with the background of symbolism, unless you deal with that and you understand apocalyptic type language, and you understand sort of the state of interpretation today by many, many people, uh, then uh, you're going to have a hard time understanding the plain stuff that we get to. But I think we'll get to it just fine. I think it will make perfect sense to you. And so if you've got a different view of it, uh, 
that's okay. Just listen carefully and we'll go from there. So if I'm correct, my good buddy Richard here, good to see Scott too, by the way. And seen Scott for a while, but we're good buddies from a long time ago as well. But Richard and I certainly are, and we keep up with each other and have some special private jokes between us that uh, I will not repeat. But uh, at any rate, it has been great to be with you tonight. And we'll pick up from there next week. And so let me stop the share. And Richard can sign us off here. Okay. So thanks very much. Great to be with you. Look forward to next week. I hope my computer uh, worked okay tonight or my wife's computer, but I'll have mine up to speed by next week. So God bless you all. It's always good to be in New York. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you so much, Gordon. That was tremendous job, tremendous introduction. I know they can't hear you can't hear them. Please, uh, let's put our hands together for, for our brother Gordon Ferguson from Dallas, Texas. Fantastic, fantastic job. We look forward to, to hearing the rest of the classes. At this time, I'm going to ask uh, our brother from uh, Staten Island, David Salazar, to close us out with a word of prayer. And then I know many of us are going to be going to uh, individual breakout rooms in our different Bible talks to have a great time of fellowship. Again, thank you, Gordon. We'll see you same time next week. Thank you so much.